0: Terry Bradshaw. Terry Bradshaw. Terry Bradshaw is ridiculous. I was thinking of Terry Bradshaw. I can't
1: believe you're thinking of Terry Bradshaw.
0: (laughs) When literally no one ever thinks of Terry Bradshaw.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can't tell you the last time I thought of Terry Bradshaw.
0: I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. In this podcast, we get together to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We want Critical Faith to give you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS.
1: Each week, we will invite past and present members of ICS and friends of the Institute to join us. We'll ask them to share their journey in scholarship and how it connects to their faith and their lives. I'm Mark Standish, and I'm also an ICS junior member. Joining us today, we have PhD student and former property lawyer, Samir Gasanov. We'll welcome Sam a little later in the program. gets us to our first segment don't miss this in this segment we will highlight all kinds of things that we don't want you as our listeners to miss new books and articles in philosophy theology and current affairs important events and anniversaries in these same worlds and in the church year and every now and then an event at the institute for christian studies so danielle what's something we should not miss out on
0: well i was just literally just handed a piece of paper by a our friendly neighborhood Jesuit named Adam Hmm. uh, announcing a conference that he's helping put together. So I'm going to do my duty here and promote that. So Regis college is hosting a lecture as part of their crossroads of theology series. uh, And they have Dr. Christina Labriola speaking. The title of the lecture is going to be beautiful God, the incarnation and the arts. Christina is really great. I heard her talk very expertly about music not that long ago, actually. Hmm. Um, and this is going to be a bit more uh, generalizable to other arts as well, I guess. But so she's wonderful to listen to. So it's worth going. I think I'm also going to go. Uh, it's happening on Monday, March 25th at 515 to 715. And there is apparently supper provided. Ooh. Um, apparently also it's for university students and Young professionals, so between 18 and 35, because those are the people who food works for. It is. As, a, as an incentive I'm to one attend of those, events.
1: And food is certainly an incentive.
0: <laughs> it's true. Um, so, since there's food involved, they are asking people to uh, register. It's free, but they're asking people to register uh, at regiscollege.ca slash event slash incarnation, which we will also post in our descriptions so you can see it.
1: Great. My turn. My don't miss this this week is um, a reminder that ICS's undergraduate workshop on God and politics is approaching our application deadline. So that is Friday, March 15th, 2019. So remember to submit your papers, uh, sign up for the conference, you can contact uh, Hector at H. Acero Ferrer at ICSCanada.edu.
0: If you can justify a, a research interest having something to do with God and politics and religion in the public life in the 21st century, bring it on. We would love it. Yeah.
1: Just like the movie. Bring it on.
0: (laughs) If you have a cheer routine that has something to do with God and politics, I would be most impressed.
1: Uh, Me too. It would definitely (laughs) add a, a flavor to the conference, you know? It's
0: true. I don't know what kind of flavor. Certain kind of academic umami. Our second segment, we want to give you a glimpse of what it's like to be critically faithful in a graduate school of philosophy, theology, and interdisciplinary studies like ICS. So we're simply asking our guests, what are you working on? We'll talk about seminars and courses taking place at ICS at this moment, the reading and other research our members are doing, our writing, publishing, presentations, and conference participation. So hi, Sam. Hi. Welcome to our show.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Uh, before we jump in, I would like to ask you a few questions for in, to introduce you to everyone. Certainly. Uh, so first, tell me what was your favorite childhood book? You could, you were mentioning a story earlier about some rats and things, so you could you yeah, could go with that one again, that or actually, you could go with another. Well, I, can't,
2: I mean, it must have been some of the you know Andersen stories, but I actually think the one was um, it was some compilation of the myths and legends of ancient Greece and Rome, uh. and it was great. It was like the entire mythology. I mean, everything. You know, um, uh, from from the journeys to the gods to the you know to the Trojan War, and uh, I just remember being really engrossed in both the story and these kinds of like, wow, well, they are larger than life figures. You know, uh, <laughs> from Prometheus to the gods and the fire. It's like, wow, does the liver really grow? <laughs> when this nasty bird comes in and picks out his liver and it grows overnight. It's like, wow, what a fable, right? <laughs> so that probably was certainly the most, most memorable.
0: Yeah. That's funny. Like you mentioned that. I remember very specifically being super fascinated by all of those myths too. Like specifically the Greek and Roman ones. Yeah. And like, yeah. I remember my brother coming home at some point, my older brother from school. And they had been talking about the um, mythology stories and all these things. And I basically just like demanded that he tell me all of them because he was a great ahead of me and we hadn't gotten that yet.
2: Just, right. It's
0: very specific memory for some reason. So second question, what is your favorite bar or coffee shop here in Toronto?
2: A bar or coffee
0: shop? Or bar and coffee shop. Like bar if, and whatever, coffee shop. Whatever floats
2: your boat. So coffee shop, definitely Jimmy's. So I'd say, I mean, I'm not really a coffee shop guy, as in, like, I don't actually go to coffee shops to do work. Um, but if I go to a coffee shop, I go to Jimmy's. It's, you know, they're now sort of almost like a chain here in Toronto yeah. uh, for those listening from outside. But uh, yeah. but Jimmy's is cool. Do you I have mean, a specifically uh, f-
0: specific favorite Jimmy's?
2: Uh, so there is one in Kensington Market that I like. That uh. one is really good. Um, there is one on Girard. That's kind of a, it's actually three-story. And oh, yeah. so that's so, kind of cool. There's like even like a meeting room upstairs you can yeah. book. I mean, it's cool. So, and uh, there's these dusty books. I don't think anybody opens them, but the fact that they're there. So on the <laughs> coffee Just
0: looking at them makes you happy.
2: It makes <laughs> me happy.
0: <laughs> Those are good ones. Yeah, Jimmy's is fun. Um, Our third intro question, and last one, and is also the most controversial who do you think is the most overrated philosopher of our time, or if you like, of all time?
2: So, so Mark sent me these questions, and I was, was looking at them like, I don't know, an overrated philosopher. I even went on a website, like, you know, what do people say? Overrated, you know? overrated <laughs> philosopher? I was like, Oh, Actually, no. <laughs> and then I thought, you know, I'm gonna have to like say something that will be kind of like I'll be able to defend. And I'll just, is Jim Malthius listening? <laughs> and uh I mean it's gotta be Derrida. Oh. It's got to be. T- I mean, and the thing is, I'm actually like I've got a lot of Derrida and I've tried to read them. But I just don't know if history is going to be kind in a sense of, like, has he really improved on Heidegger and Nietzsche? I don't know. Like, the Germans apparently don't really read past Heidegger. It's just like, we, you know, we know it all kind of thing. <laughs> um, and then the other gripe I have, and this is like, all of these French intellectuals, it's just impossible to read. Like, he really tried to, like, what is this sentence? You know, if I'm reading it the third time, it's not me. It's like, what? So so I feel like he is clearly a very nuanced and careful reader, and he does really interesting things. But I just wonder whether there is a way in which... You could do it simpler <laughs> <laughs> without, all. Oh, I even like own the movie. There's a movie about him uh, that nice. he, yeah, it's called Dared. It's like one of these oh, kind of yeah. things. But uh, and he's a very interesting guy, but he's got to be one of the more overrated ones. Is that, is that? Oh, you've, I...
0: you've said it now. You'd have to stand by your opinion. Like, that's it. It's out there. I'm assuming then. Jumping from Derrida. Derrida has nothing to do with what you're working on.
2: No, are not, working on? not really. Well, e- Derrida has everything to do with everything, <laughs> of course. Of course. Everything is a pharmacon. What are now, you working on then? So I am working on an ontology of property.
0: Explain.
2: So, yeah, yeah, right. So um, so there are a couple of sort of a big Christian, you know, Nicholas Wolterstorff and Oliver Donovan, who are sort of in the realm of political philosophy and political theology. They're kind of big fish uh, in sort of working on constructive theories of justice. And part of what they do is they they have this kind of a long view of the Christian tradition. And I mean, they know the tradition really well. Donovan, with his wife, actually, he's got like this massive tome. Uh, I think it's called like from Irenaeus to Grotius. It's like, you know, here's millennia and a half of Christian political thought. I mean, it's just really impressive how much they know together. It's just like, wow. But one thing that they don't really pay attention to, and particularly, you know, doesn't, O'Donovan's got his own reading on this, is property and property rights. And it just seemed to me like that's uh, uh, an illuminating a mission or an under kind of theorized sort of thing. And because I'm a recovering property lawyer, (laughs) sort of thought, well, you know, maybe there is something there. So we kind of started digging into it. And one of the things with Bob's help I've been able to to dig into is that property is actually a really big deal for Christians. Mm. Um, In part because, you know, of course, you know, the Genesis story, you know, Adam and Eve don't own anything before Eve arrives. Presumably, you know, it's just Adam and this entire world. Um, Jesus inaugurates this whole new community that we see in Acts where everybody shares and nobody has any kind of want or need. So property is like a really big deal. But then in later Middle Ages, 13th, 14th century, there's this huge controversy about property rights. And there's an actual standoff between the Franciscans and the then Pope John 22nd. And they're specifically arguing uh, about whether or not Franciscans, as an order, so not as individual mendicant monks, there are other monks who don't own anything, but as an entire order. And like by 14th century, there's like over 1,500 Franciscan houses all over Latin Christendom. And what they're effectively saying is, well, we don't even have the rights to the shirts on our back. We obviously need food. We need a you know crust of bread and, and, and a glass of water. We need our, you know, hard tunics on our backs, but we don't have rights to them because we're poor as our Francis Father Francis was poor, and of course, as Jesus was poor. While the papacy in the church have effectively become the legal right holders. So they have to prosecute all of these this litigation all over Christendom. You know where people donate property or whatever so anyway so that's a story that both wolderström and donovan know really well but they just don't seem to make too much of it in the sense of how you know to take sort of that kind of vignette which becomes sort of a backdrop for the way people like Locke and so on uh work out theory of property rights and like property is huge in our society it's arguably the defining feature of the modern world. I mean, we even now commodify, you know, air and environment. I mean, the very elements that make, you know, life possible. But there's really no, uh, certainly no Protestant theory of property. So, seem like something you could do, something you can work on, in a way that can complement what these thinkers are working on. Yeah. So that's kind of my. My little project.
0: Yeah, so this is in the context of doing your PhD here as well. So right. this is your PhD research. What's kind of your working hypothesis about why Walter and O'Donovan don't care supposedly about property?
2: Well, so I so I think the answers are you know it's interesting. So Walter has a book on Locke. And Index doesn't even have a mention of the word property <laughs> because he's interested in belief, you know, and, you know, Locke in the middle of, you know, the English Revolution and what that means. And so he's sort of interested on that kind of level. Um, O'Donovan is clearly aware of it and he does comment on it. Uh, even in this big tome, he's got a section um, dealing with property and Aquinas and so on. But I think they take a kind of a mainstream Christian approach, which is, okay, so to put it polemically, property theft, mm-hmm. right? And this is kind of Proudhon's kind of thing, you know, but but in the sense that, you know, property theft, if there is this gross inequality and property is something to be shared, well, then there is, you know, nothing more interesting to say about that. And I sort of say, well, yeah. That's true, <laughs> and yet I think there is more that we can say about that. Like property is a way for us to, you know, be fully human. Like if something is taken away from you, then you know you feel violated. If in some ultimate way, like think about um, people are stripped away in their, from their property, um, you know, the Japanese internment in Canadian history, uh, the Jews are stripped of their property. I mean, that's you know the next step is full exclusion from political community and dehumanization. So property is somehow like an extension of self in the social world. Um, So I think not to thematize it is to miss something really important about our creatureliness. And and I think they're just working on such high level abstraction, thinking about rights and so on that They just don't descend down to where the rest of us are.
0: (laughs) 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 So what are you what are you kind of looking at to fill that gap then between that high level and the ground level? Yeah.
2: So so this is going to be some tap dancing, you know, (laughs) um, because I'm sort of trying to bring in like this medieval stuff, but I am no medievalist. I know no Latin. So it's mostly sort of, you know, literature reviews on, you know, a lot of really good stuff that's been written. Uh, That's kind of one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is the so property has become almost exclusively um, thing that that lawyers worry about. Mm whether it's like actual, you know, lawyers practicing or law professors. So the hunch is, and I think I'm right, (laughs) um, is that we thereby commit um, uh, a fallacy whereby we reduce property to legality. Mm -hmm. And you obviously need law as to order things properly and so on, but there's something more. And Franciscans are really good about that. So for example, in cases of extreme necessity, so a mother sees her children starve and she steals, you know, a head of cabbage. Um that's at that point that's no longer theft because it's necessary for survival. So cases of extreme necessity become like this borderline liminal situation where you say, well no, actually there's something about property where it, it in some ways it belongs to all of us. And if there is gross inequality, something is offended not maybe in a legal way but but perhaps a moral order is offended Mm -hmm. Um, so I think you know like we now even have criminal statutes on the books where if you do some illegal dumping of chemical substances in what economists used to call externalities you know now we say well you just can't do it like you're something that you know native spirituality would sort of acknowledge you just you are intrinsically have to worry about the next generation. And this is not some physical object. This is mother earth and, and so on. So, um, so it's bringing in sort of this jurisprudential conversation uh, in with this historical discussion and then framing it all uh, by this conversation between O'Donovan and Wolterstorff. So I'm sort of weaving different things together um, Hopefully it's not a Frankenstein.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not. That sounds very interesting. And yeah, like you mentioned, very alive in discussions today, political and otherwise.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I come from a place where, of course, we, at least in principle, nobody had uh, private property. So that was also very Mm -hmm. interesting. So um You know, there's one classicist and he talks about uh, myth of communality, like whether you are like from Plato on or like in this Christian mythos, there's just a sense that this is an ideal state. Mm. Certainly communists also took it sort of in a certain direction and it just doesn't work. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like maybe I'd be agnostic about whether this is a pre or a post lapsarian thing but it's certainly something that you just can't do without. It's like a necessary specification. Um, there's this thing about like, why do we wear clothes? Because we're more than our bodies. And I sort of feel like property is kind of like, like that. It's, it's like it helps not only sort of modulate all of the, all of the justice issues, um, but it's also somehow like it's just intrinsically human.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned like the discussion getting reduced to terms of legality uh, and then as an alternative to that, you kind of mentioned morality as a broader category. Do you think morality is the kind of framework in which you're wanting to discuss these things? Is that, does that get at that kind of extra or more human way of talking about it?
2: So, so, I mean, first I would say that like you can't dismiss the legal, right? So the legal needs to be there because it is, um, it's a, it's an essential element of justice. So it needs to be there in order to sort of spell out clearly who owns what and how. So, you know, you're in a situation, you're dividing the household after marriage collapsed and, you know, separation of property is really important. Like, who owns what and how to do it well? I mean, there's something very justice-like um, about that. So I don't want to dismiss that. What I want to say is that there is something more. Um, is it moral? Is it ethical? Is it aesthetic? I mean, now you can sort of invoke uh, what is, you know, kind of a standard in our reformational tradition, um, talking about, you know, modal aspects and so on. So, you know, how does it, how does it operate? property is necessarily an institute; a human institution so I don't think I'm gonna do a full sort of a weird and <laughs> modal aspect kind of a thing but it's certainly you know without it I don't think I would have had the antenna up to notice that hey like they're appealing to something else here there is something more going on like just one more thing on this so like uh, at Nuremberg trials this was this was an issue the Fuhrer's order was absolutely legal, but it was also absolutely immoral.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I mean, it's probably sort of somewhere at the heart of kind of a Western system of justice and law is that how do you negotiate that distinction? Because you can't conflate law and justice. Yeah. So, so then you know, if property, so property in that sense is something more. It's not all of it either, but. I don't know. That's gets gets at the answer, yeah, but it's no, yeah. very
0: interesting. Can you maybe talk about like what's at stake for you in asking these questions or in writing this this dissertation that you're writing? Like for you, like you kind of talked about in general, it's relevance, right? Um, is there anything that's like drawing you to this topic in particular?
2: I think in some ways, like I'm doing a PhD, obviously here, but um, I kind of feel like it's a way for me to weave together different parts of my life so you know I was a student here over 15 years ago then I went on to do law um, but like if I don't read stuff like this I just shrivel. Mm. so there's just something was kind of missing uh, for example in legal practice if you can't ask bigger questions, And you can't because you know, you're too busy and you've got to answer a specific question and so on. Right. So that's, that's kind of what you're busy with. Um, but then also feels like, so this is like an opportunity for me at some other level to kind of, you know, put it together. And I have to remember, like, I can't like answer all the questions and this is not going to be definitive statement about anything. So in a way it's actually like very personal. Like, it's just my opportunity to work in my little workshop of life. And um, so in in some ways, like, I feel like there's a lot writing on this. But like I was just telling you before this, like, just sort of being detached about it is what it is. And I think in the writing, also perhaps clarifying, like, asking better questions about, what really should be asked Mm -hmm. so like before looking at this i had no idea that there was this controversy in 13th and 14th centuries 14th century they're already thinking about this stuff Mm -hmm. um so yeah so i think that it's very sort of it's my way of staking out territory Mm -hmm. and sort of saying this is you know i want to contribute and engage and for somebody like sort of in as a as a christian scholar um i think in some ways like you are a steward of this whole huge repository of resources because i think we often feel like we're at the loss of resources we can but it's just like there's this huge tradition and people have thought about stuff really carefully can we somehow call and cultivate and bring to light so that's what i'm doing
1: In our third segment, we want to talk directly to the professors of the future. Moving on from what you've been working on, we will talk about what it is like to be a scholar and how you made your way into academic life. We hope, over time, to map the journey from being an undergraduate student to being a professor of philosophy or theology, with an emphasis on teaching philosophy in undergraduate programs. This week we're asking Sam to narrate a bit about his undergraduate years. Specifically, asking him what moved him in the direction of where he is now. So, Sam, could you give us a glimpse into your overall experience
2: as an undergraduate? So that was quite an introduction. If you with that preface, that's really intimidating <laughs> I'm to sort of wait on this. But uh, well, so so I went to Dort. Mm. Uh, Dort is a lot of fun, in part because. Okay, so I have to tell you a story. Yeah, go for it. So I was first a biology major and then a chemistry major. In fact, I got to TAing organic chemistry and I'm sitting in this biochem class my second year and this really wonderful chemistry professor. And I kept asking why questions. And at some point he was getting exasperated. It's this ironic man. And he sort of said, you know, in this class, we don't ask why we ask how. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I, I had this moment of a light go off. It's like, I'm in the wrong building. Hmm. I need to be across the street in the humanities. So a couple of people there um, were contemporaries of Hank and Jim, and they studied together with Volhoeven and Doyle and so on. John Van Der Stel, John Van Dyke and others. And they were huge for me. Um, so I was obviously new as a young convert, um, to Christianity. This whole reform stuff was, uh, just like, what is this? So for me, both introduction to the faith and this introduction to this whole kind of a Kuiperian world and life view, um, just completely blew me out of the water. Yeah. So, so I think personal example, like I, I would take classes just because John that was teaching them. Hmm. and I couldn't even tell you what it was said in class, but the way it was said, it it was like Moses leading us out into the desert. it was just like just just lead the way. <laughs> um, so that was really and then and then after um, it was like, well there's this place in Toronto ICS and it's like always knew I had to come to the ICS hmm. and boy were they right <laughs> So you
1: you mentioned, uh Professor John Vanderstilt, Stilt. V- Vander Stilt, yeah. Is there a way in which he taught that particularly grabbed you?
2: So, so you know, he was also Harry Fernhout's professor. He was Lambert Ziderwart's professor. Mm. Like he's taught generations of people before God got to me. Okay, so he'd invite us to his home. And he'd make sure everybody had popcorn and drinks. And then we'd watch Romero. Hmm. And and I just remember feeling completely, like for, for anybody who's seen the film, like it's, it's, a, it's a great movie, but it also leaves you disoriented and shocked and feeling like, what can I do? And he would just know how not to make it all okay, but to say, okay, this is why you need to study. (laughs) (laughs) Like somehow it was all about, okay, problems are huge. There are lots of issues and lots of things we ought to be doing. Um, But for that, you need to understand things. You need to be sensitized. You need to raise awareness. You need to be educated. So he would talk about undergraduate education as a boot camp. Hmm. This is 4 years to to be in boot camp. He was very conscious of his time and I thought that was very impressive like like every minute was accounted for. He was I mean, if you want to call it that, he was mission oriented. Hmm. He had a mission in life and he had to do these things and he had to be very economical. Uh, in the best sense of the word. And uh, that kind of a single-mindedness, I think probably more than anything. I mean, he was just razor sharp about what he had to do.
1: Um, And when you got to ICS, you did your MA at ICS, correct? At the time, it was called MPhil-F. Okay, so you did your MPhil-F at ICS. Can you tell us a bit about... uh what you encountered when you came to Toronto to, to ICS, and did it break any expectations that
2: you had? So like you, I, I was commuting from Hamilton, mm-hmm. so I, I'd come in, I had, a, I had a full-time job in Hamilton, I'd come here to to do this ICS thing. So first was Hank was the registrar and I had to get a special permission to to study and work at the same time because they wouldn't allow working over 10 hours. Hmm. So the first semester was really stressful because the condition was I had to get in all my papers in on time. And as everybody knows, (laughs) who knows about the ICS, it's a bit of a genetic problem. Papers are never on time. (laughs) So I spent first Christmas like chained to the computer and the books and getting the books out, getting the papers out. Um, the big shock was uh, just how important writing was. Mm. So you know, English is my third language, and in college, I was more sort of focused on figuring things out. Somehow, I had this complete, undairy doll-like disconnect. If I got it figured out, I don't have to write about it. Mm. Like writing is somehow secondary. But this was part of the kind of like, oh, what if, what if writing is originary? Like, what if you can't write it? You don't actually understand it. So that was probably like one of the shocking experiences as a graduate student. I had to learn, um, oh, I don't actually understand it because I can't say it. Yeah, I can read a book, but then I have not read it very well. It wasn't until I went, you know, after that I went to law school to realize, oh, wow, I've been now given a huge gift. Hmm. Because, I mean, I, in fact, I can now sort of say with a lot of confidence that the way you learn how to read here, there are not very many places. Hmm. Many people do not know how to read. Hmm. Yeah. So you went
1: on to, uh, to be a lawyer. What type of lawyer, uh, did you become
2: after ICS? So I went to law school and then all these big bay street firms which is kind of like wall street for the Americans they were there hiring so i ended up at a big kind of a national law firm downtown so i was a commercial real estate construction lawyer
1: hmm. and what what drew you back to academia
2: so i spent about a decade on bay street it was actually my uh, my partnership year and partnership is kind of like tenure hmm. So it's like, you're really signaling with your life. This is kind of what you want to do. This is life now. And I think partly that, and you know, maybe God wasn't done with me. I'm not sure, but it's just, I realized I'm living somebody else's life. Hmm. It just didn't really make sense. So I left the firm and I actually ended up at Wycliffe college at hmm. uh, TST. Uh, I was doing some courses, part-time discerning call to ordination i subsequently discovered, I am no church ministerial material. There's just no way. So then I started the PhD program uh, between U of T and TST. So I did that for a year. Then I despaired and went back, but now as a civil servant, so I worked for the um, provincial government for a couple of years. Mm. And then I was reading, because I can't live if, I I sure will if I don't read. <laughs> then I took a class with, um, hank jim and cal danielle is smiling because uh that's how we met uh in that in that class like no this is this is what i should be doing hmm. i have no idea where this is going i have no idea if this is useful to anybody but if i don't do this i don't know how i'm going to explain this at the pearly gates yeah yeah no I'd, i get that um
1: <laughs> So thinking about your experience, do you have any advice for current undergraduates that are thinking about maybe doing grad school or what they're doing after, after
2: their undergrad? So there's this class at Stanford okay. in California, and there's this couple of, I forget their names, Bill, anyways, will come to me. But um, So they've now written a book, it's called Design Your Life, hmm. and it's the most popular class at Stanford. So they do discourage people from launching into a PhD for the reason that it's kind of like committing to a partnership or whatever. Like it's a long-term project Mm -hmm. and it's such a huge thing that's going to become your life. But a master's degree is, it's a good idea to experiment with something that you think you're interested in. So I think for anybody who is considering Christian graduate education, uh, I, I mean, I, I cannot recommend any other place than this. Mm. Um, Certainly come, you know, test it out for yourself. Learn to read. I Mm. mean, no matter what you end up doing, uh, this will be helpful. I, I can attest to that.
0: That brings us to the last of our regular segments, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Mark, what's your pleasure? Aside from the Tim Hortons you are currently drinking.
1: Hmm. I do love a good hot chocolate. <laughs> but that's not my pleasure this week. This week is um Another New Yorker article written by Gabriel Garcia Marquez um, entitled How I Became a Writer. And it's just uh, him recounting his journey into authorship. It was actually it was actually published in 2003. So there's one of these like repost things. Mm. But, you know, it's always good to revisit good writers.
0: It's true. So is he talking about editorial writing or is he like. No, no,
1: like fiction. Fiction. Have you ever read him? I've not. Oh, you should
0: see. I know nothing about this person,
1: Gabriel Gar- uh, Garcia Marquez. No. Oh, he's a very famous uh, writer. What, what did he, he wrote? Um, a yeah, a very old man with enormous wings. That's really good, actually.
0: Oh, I'll have to check that one out. I've been craving fiction lately, so
1: yeah, and it's short, short, short fiction, so you can just blitz through it.
0: Mine is also related to a book. Uh, it's called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. It's the like cooking documentary on Netflix, mm. which is based off of uh, a cookbook that was just recently released by Samin Nosrat. And I've definitely watched all the episodes on Netflix and that's been my, you devoured them. I devoured it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that was low hanging fruit for you. We're just yeah. going to go on with the food puns now.
1: Oh, Yep.
0: Uh I eat yes. that up.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um it's actually a really fun. It's four episodes, hour long mm-hmm. on each thing. So salt episode, fat episode, acid episode, heat episode. Basically her her whole premise behind both the cookbook and the TV show. She's a chef. Uh is that if you master those four things that you can master cooking mm. because those things are the building blocks of everything having to do with cooking. And then she kind of, on the TV show, she goes through, goes to all these different places and interacts with a lot of like artisanal, like people who produce these things, like various elements of these things or who cook with them or whatever. I haven't read the cookbook. I don't have the cookbook. A friend of mine does and she loves it. She says she just like reads it for fun. Mm. Um, I've
1: never done that before with a cookbook.
0: I know. I have not either. But apparently it's that kind of cookbook. (laughs) But the TV show is funny or it's fun because she just goes around and the entire premise of the show is like just watching her have so much joy about Hmm. eating.
1: (laughs) You know what I always say? I love people who love things.
0: Yes, I do too. She loves these things. She is so excited. I uh, love that about everything that she comes into contact with. It's I can just... I
1: can overlook so many faults if people just love things.
0: It's true. It's, I mean, true. it's maybe
1: not always a good a good um, a good part of me, but <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be overlooking thought, faults. But
0: but there's a certain stance that's admirable in that. Says the person who also does that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you love people who love things,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and if you love food. Check it out. It's fun. Yeah. My roommates and I, we've all watched it. brings us to the end of our show this week. If you would like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can find my co-host as at Mark Standish and me as at Beware the Yeti. You can also follow ICS as at INSCHR.
1: And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, go tell your friends. Bye-bye.
0: Toodaloo.